The year is 1965. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. Marvelous Year Comic Book Reading Club. I'm Zach, the comic book newcomer, and along with Dave, the comic book Big Daddy, we will cover all the essential Marvel <laughs> stories from its origins to today. This episode will be covering the first part of 1964. Wait, you don't like you don't like being called Big Daddy? I thought you said it was just a normal thing for coworkers to call each other, like the Fantastic yep. Four. Nope. Totally normal. I stand by that. <laughs> yeah, we'll be covering the first part of 1965 today. We're starting out with Fantastic Four number 36. You want to get us rolling on that, Dave? Yeah. So before I dive right into the issue, I will just call out. Thanks, everybody, who's listening to My Marvelous Year so far. Um, if you like the show and you get a second and you have have the time, um, definitely please write us a short review on iTunes or even just a rating would go a long way to helping other people find the show. Uh, if you're curious about yeah. like really getting in there with the club and talking about things on our exclusive MMY Slack channel, uh, check out our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash mymarvelousyear. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Um, and all of the support that we've received so far, we are extremely grateful for. And and even if you don't, just listening, talking to your friends about it, um, any, anything goes a long way. So thanks for all the listeners. Let's get into the comics of 1965. We've got Fantastic Four number 36 that we're reading this year. We do, uh, like like all 60s years, there's going to be a fair amount of Fantastic Four. And this first issue that we're reading is the debut of the Frightful Four. So we have the cover. You got the Frightful Four team sort of as they loom over the Fantastic Four. And Zach, your boy, Pace Pop Pete, sliding <laughs> down Medusa's hair and spraying the thing. It's the weirdest supervillain team. There's a really strange combination of supervillains that have no thematic, no thematic uh, cohesion here. We'll we'll get into the the lineup and the formation. But and, like, and I don't even think they look cool. They're all just wearing like all purple outfits. That I don't know. The, the only one who looks good, I think, is Medusa. That like purple and the orange look okay together. But yeah, yeah. right. I mean, the wizards. The wiz- Well, okay. Let's let's get to the lineup. <laughs> so we've got a story here by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby. We have Chickstone on inks and Art Semek on letters. So I, I got about halfway through this issue when I was like, "Is this Jack Kirby? There's something mm. like new about this. There's something different about the art here. Like it looks like his work, but the line work is just is different." And I went back and looked, and yeah, he's got an inker on this, which I think is new for him. I think Chickstone has only been inking. This is the second one he inked for him. And you can really tell the difference having having a new inker on. Like he just adds a lot of um, he really makes the the black lines thicker on the outside and really I don't know, especially for the thing it really changes the appearance of the thing. There's some really cool shots. Hmm. Yeah, I really I really love the ink work. Yeah, that's a cool call out because this is the year that that Kirby like his workload finally starts to just become too much. You can tell, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's like it it really calls out the astonishing pace at which he had been both creating and working like 
laying out, drawing, and inking his own comics for the first, you know, three years of Marvel, like, is a is a preposterous workload. And just, like, you always hear these legendary tales of his, like, the amount of pages he was able to finish in a day. When you hear comics artists talk about, like, you know, finishing, like, a single page is so labor-intensive, and Kirby mm-hmm. can do it, like, fast. Like, not only could he do it well, but he could do it faster than anyone, which is, I think, what makes him so celebrated amongst amongst artists and fans. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, as the year progresses, we'll see a lot of issues where the the credits read Kirby layouts, but then yeah, a separate yeah. penciler. And that's going to lead to some interesting mm-hmm. changes in like the Marvel art style. Yeah. I, well, you know what I was just thinking about? We're in 1965. This is year four of Marvel. I just realized that everything we have been talking about is Stan Lee. Like talking about prolific I think every single issue we have read has been written by Stan Lee. I think some have been scripted by his brother, Larry Lieber, but like Stan Lee has had his hands in all these pies. And I just like the amount of output is remarkable. Yeah, you do. Um, You see other scripters. Uh, yeah, Larry Lieber, his brother, um, like H.E. Huntley, I know was on some of the, the Ant-Man work that we looked at. Hmm. But yeah, generally, I mean, always Stan gets a plot credit. So like yeah. he's always involved because editorially he's he's at least talking to the people. Now you talk okay. to some of those creators and and how much was he doing there? Like it's different, but but I don't. <laughs> okay. yeah. I think the one thing I don't think there's any real like good debate on is the guy was like the stories are Stan was always at his typewriter constantly writing because he had so much output, you know. And it's like eventually, and I think this is the year where we'll kind of start to see it, especially into next year. Like he starts needing help too. And that's where you'll get, like, the introduction of Roy Thomas, who becomes big in Marvel, as, like, an editorial assistant to Stan. Yeah, I was just thinking that, too, of, like, this is going to be interesting when we see other writers come in and, like, other visions. Because, you know, the Marvel Universe explodes with different voices and different writers. But so far, it's all really been, if not all written by Stan Lee, at least filtered through him. Yeah, totally. totally. So... Frightful Four introduction, Fantastic Four number 36. Uh, this comic begins Reed and Sue announcing their engagement, which is a long time coming. Um, I think mm-hmm. one thing I always, I kind of thought Sue was like debuted as his fiance, but really it's like his intended fiance to be. It's like Reed gave her a promise ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might have messed that up <laughs> in our first episode, or I might have messed that up. We definitely refer to her as a fiance. Uh, but I, she's not yeah, yeah. apparently that because they just announced their engagement. Um, right, so yeah. they're they're celebrating this. Everyone's super happy. The press is all like, you know, all it's like a like a royal wedding kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This this cements the Fantastic Four as celebrities, right? And they're yeah. not just like superhero celebrities. They have paparazzi, and you know, there, there's a, a gaggle of press following them around, asking questions. And it's funny. I think Ben Grimm tries to like, hey, don't you want to ask me anything? And they're like. <laughs> Go talk to Monster Magazine Monthly, Ben. We're not here for you. Yeah. The press kind of just teasing him about his appearance. It, Yeah, it does. Like we saw this towards the tail end of 64 too with the debut of Cap and Avengers where like the press shows mm-hmm. up to talk. And it really, I think it really highlights and like you're saying cements the differences like between the Fantastic Four and the Avengers compared to like the X-Men and Spider-Man and maybe like Daredevil where these teams are, these are the celebrities, you know, these are the culture. Whereas those other heroes, Doctor Strange, even like they're counterculture. They're not talking to the press. They're not getting calls from the military, but like FF and Avengers, they're institutions. Sure. Right. So they announced their engagement. One, one piece I really liked here is Yancey street sends Ben a 
Well, so they send a wedding present, and it's from Yancey Street, and Ben Grimm opens it, and it's basically a bomb, a bomb gag. Like it's a prank <laughs> like, bomb, like an Acme cartoon bomb. Bad idea. Bad idea, <laughs> Yancey Street. <laughs> so the bomb what do you mean? goes you, off. A, a joke bomb. Doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't doesn't play great. Everyone's freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, they sent a bomb. It goes off and it explodes with flowers for the <laughs> for the the happy couple, which is like it's their way. Everyone kind of immediately downplays it. Like, oh, that's actually kind of sweet for them. Um, but Yancey, come on. <laughs> Yeah. Then we cut away to the wizard. He has uh, brought together the Sandman, Spider-Man's villain, Flint Marco, and Triple P, Pace Pot P. (laughs) (laughs) So they've gathered together. The wizard is basically like, we need to form a Frightful Four team. He tells them of... And, and basically the team, they're all kind of like, well, we don't have a girl, though. Like, we don't – they have soon. We don't have a girl. How can we do we, this? We can't be a counterbalance to the Fantastic Four without a woman. Yeah. I, yeah. It's kind of funny. It's like the Marvel Universe's first in-universe diversity initiative. <laughs> it is. I, I like how focused they are on matching the the gender dynamics exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that's it. They don't match anything else. It's just yeah. just gender. No, that's it. Um, so it's so a wizard tells them that he has encountered this Madame Medusa – and her truly dope hair. And basically, Sandman <laughs> and Face Poppy get very excited about that. Uh, so well, they, they actually question, like, why would she join you? Has she even heard of you? And he says, even she has heard of the wizard. Yeah. It's like, uh, no, she hasn't. And neither has anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. And just to call out Medusa, she has cool hair powers in that, like, she has this really long flowing red hair, and basically she can oh, yeah. use it like um, extended limbs or extended mm-hmm. whips. You know, it's like uh, it's like Dr. Octopus arm sort of, but hair. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that is right. that is Medusa's whole deal as we know it. And she's going to be become a much bigger player in the future, and, well, we'll get into that, but she's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. So Wizard gets on his anti-gravity suit, which is, again, like his his power set here is invention and a mind somewhat rivaling or attempting to rival Reed Richards, and he's built all this anti-grav technology. And he puts on his suit, and he introduces the team to Medusa, who apparently he has brought from the island that he encountered her on. Um, and, and Medusa's origin here is, is quite... Uh, Quite different, maybe, than what you would expect, but it's interesting. Yeah, she's just living in a cave harassing the locals, like, you know, the the, the local cryptid, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he goes and, I don't know, finds her and uh, recruits her to the team. And, and she seems, if she seems, like, overly compliant and just going with the flow, like, you're not wrong. You know, there's there's going to come a, come a reckoning on that. So anyway, the Fantastic Four are having a superhero engagement party. And it's a nice, it's a nice little spread of cameos. Um, you have like a weird dynamic of all of the X Men are there, but then Professor X is there and pretending he doesn't know them. Like Iceman makes a comment, like, "Man, right. it's weird. We have to pretend we don't know the Professor," which I don't totally understand. I guess it's because the world doesn't know he's a mutant. Yeah, right. Like he's he's not the head of the X Men officially. He's just a smart guy who was invited to the party. Incidentally, the X Men are invited to the party, but they all live at his school. 
and they all attend his school. <laughs> yeah. I'm very well, confused. But the X-Men all have secret identities too, right? So Do they? The, I guess they do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. totally. Right. Yeah, that because that comes up a few times so far that like Professor X at this point is like wiping any mind who comes across their identities. That's, so, that's true. We're going to get to that <laughs> with, later no too. No about wiping minds. Yeah. There, my favorite cameo here is there's a shot like a shot uh away from the party of just the birthday cake sitting by itself and you just see i think spider-man's arm reaching through the window yeah. and like web, web a piece away yeah <laughs> and he says like wow i'm sure they would have invited me if if they only had my address <laughs> it's it's a really nice moment for sure yeah spidey didn't get didn't get his invite but he does come and take a piece of cake yeah it's really funny because it's one of the few cameos that feels like just a little wink at the shared universe rather than like amazing spider-man on sale this month yeah so the Frightful Four, I think um, after the engagement party, they break into the Baxter building and they break into Ben Grimm's room and they pretty swiftly dismiss of him, Pace Pop Pete, of course, yep. glues him up real good. And yep. and honestly, they pretty sm- swiftly dismiss of the entire team. Except for Johnny Storm, who is yeah. who's not in the building at the time. So the other three, they tie up. Johnny's out, I think, you know, working on his hot rods. Um, Alicia... <laughs> is is visiting in the Baxter building and the frightful fork kind of overlook her and she is able to in their unawareness of her being there is able to sneak out the flare gun and you know shoot out the ff flare and warn johnny of what's happening and then the frightful fork do find her and capture her so human torch to the rescue they have a chance here to... well I, I just want to say the, the wizard decides since he has all of them tied up the three of the fantastic four and alicia he, yeah his way of disposing of them is so goofy and so like <laughs> i kind of love just it. <laughs> really reminds you like oh this is a comic book <laughs> he's just like well we have to kill them so instead of just killing them he attaches like anti-gravity transmitters onto them and just like now they'll float away into the atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he balloons him into space. It is a horrible way to go, I suppose. Like it's it's a very contrived villain thing. Oh, I know. Yeah, no. I I mean, I I don't expect them just to like summarily execute their hostages, but <laughs> yeah, it it is just like they keep doing these. Uh, we have them at our mercy. Now let's do a a long, elaborate ten minute execution. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So fortunately, while the the team is potentially floating off into space, and and Reed, you know, is able to sort of parachute over them to provide them oxygen, but soon he's going to run out of oxygen. Johnny Storm is able to commandeer, so he he finds a frightful four. He's able to essentially take them all out. And and if you remember from some of our discussion of. Uh, strange tales and johnny's solo stories like he has a history with beating up the wizard and and beating up pace pop pete so they all kind of <gasps> yeah. i don't know there's a little mental block going on but like they're all taken out by johnny pretty easily yeah. and torch forces wizard to fly the ship this you know kind of spaceship style thing that they have and fly it up and actually rescue the remainder of the team so they do that right as as reed is on the verge of you know losing consciousness and mm-hmm. the plane, um, you know, they rescue everyone, but the plane crash lands, there's an explosion, and the Frightfuls all get away. And that is essentially the end of the story. Yeah, it's it's really ridiculous. The way that this ends, it's like all four of them are basically subdued. And then I don't even remember. I think the wizard just says, like, time to teleport. And then <laughs> they all vanish. And that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's totally unsatisfying and ridiculous. Yeah. The, uh, we'll call out the action in this one is okay, even though the Frightful Four, I think, are a weird mix of villains that don't particularly work together sue storm is finally starting to like become a a real active fighter for the group yeah in this it's mostly under reed's command but uh she does get a cool moment where she like takes down pace pot pete and medusa at the end they're on her own 
And um, yeah, yeah, she's just becoming like an active fighter. And it's way more interesting than her just <laughs> turning invisible and sneaking around. So uh, next we went into Fantastic Four number 37. So it shows the three boys in the Fantastic Four kind of goofing off with power rays, <laughs> just playing around with uh, Reed's power ray experiments. And Alicia comes in and tells Reed that Sue Storm's upset about something in the next room. <laughs> Reed walks in and finds Sue, like, I don't know, kind of looking up mournfully out the window. And he hands her some flowers and says, perhaps these flowers I took from the vase inside will make you feel better. <laughs> Like, the least romantic way to give flowers is just like, these were in a vase in the next room. I pulled them out. They're still wet. (laughs) (laughs) It it doesn't work. (laughs) So Sue is upset uh, because she's thinking about her father's murder by the Skrulls in Fantastic Four 32, which is one we didn't read here. That's basically all there is to it, is that some Skrulls came back to Earth, and there's a whole big thing, and Johnny and Sue Storm's father, like, sacrificed himself to save his children. Uh, so he kind of died a hero's death, but Sue is upset because the Skrulls got away and there's they, they won't have any. Actually, she says, so long as the Skrull menace remains, they might infect the rest of the stars at any time. Who knows when they'll strike again? Which like, hey, Sue, that's genocide talk. <laughs> like, who knows when these people are going to infect <laughs> everyone else? Like, we need to do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. They are a threat. I will call out real quick just with the if you're wondering, like, why didn't we read Fantastic Four number 32? It's clearly before this. Like, this is my obligatory read all of the Fantastic Four issues if you're enjoying this. <laughs> like we I 100 percent recommend it. We're we're curating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we have to pick pick and choose, but you can get from context what happened here pretty easily. Totally. Um. Oh, and then also, if you do want more. If you do want more issues, I think I'm covering like 18 issues from this year and extra issues this year. So check that out on Patreon. Sue's talk about the Skrulls brings up something that I, I'm kind of interested in talking about, which is that they are just, at least at this point, and I'm curious to see if this changes, especially with Captain Marvel coming up. The Skrulls just are talked about as an evil race of aliens. Yeah. Right? Like altogether evil. And I know some other races of aliens are considered like evil races, but they're not necessarily intelligent like i'm thinking like the brood i think when we get to the x-men they're not Mm -hmm. really intelligent they're more monsters but the scrolls like have civilization and they have culture and they are somewhat humanoid and i I don't know like i i'm i'm interested in seeing this talked about in some more nuanced ways because right now just like an entire civilization is just evil i don't know it's it's kind of boring and then also not to get too like bring it into the real world it just has some implications that are a little unsavory. Yeah, I mean, the Skrulls are our stock evil alien bad guys, number one. I mean, I think yeah. this issue even, it starts to bring in, like, a slight layer of nuance. But, I mean, generally mm-hmm. speaking, 60s Skrulls are not nuanced, like, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're just stock alien bad guys. I think... That'll get built up, and again, like like I said, like even by the time we get to the end of this issue, there's a little bit less. Like they yeah, are yeah, all sure. monsters. Yeah. So uh, speaking of which, we cut to Morat, who's this scroll warlord, and his girlfriend, <laughs> girlfriend paramour, whatever, Anel. Morat is upset that Anel's father, who's the king of the scrolls, won't consent for them to be married, despite the fact that Morat killed a human. Which like he's just like he thinks that him killing. Sue Storm's father was enough for him to <laughs> win a hand in marriage. Uh, Anel is like, Anel kind of disapproves of his wanton violence. 
And there's these really funny shots of Morat just ranting and raving about how much murder he wants to commit. And then he just, like, flies his spaceship down to a local planet and just starts blasting his ship's guns at some local wildlife. Like, a shot of just a bunch of wild animals running from his ship. He's just, like, gleefully shooting animals, like a real, you know, a 12-year-old psychopath. Right. So this does kind of, I guess, distinguish that. Like, Anel says, he's got the heart of a savage beneath the cloak of a nobleman. So that does distinguish, you know, not all Skrulls are just mindless sociopaths hashtag not all scrolls yeah i mean you get (laughs) (laughs) you get an okay look at the warring skull factions i think as this develops too like there's a sense that there are like you were saying like this is a civilization with they have different political parties and like different ideas about how things should be run back on earth they're planning for the wedding rehearsal but reed richards decides to postpone the wedding rehearsal until he gets the vengeance that Sue desires. All fiancés should be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He he borrows a spaceship from NASA because he's working on this prototype space warp thing. He tries tries out his new space-time warp, and then he explains like how this works, how he's going to cross the star system rapidly with it. And he talks about, like, Einstein said the universe is like a ball. We're inside that ball. And then you just need to cross through the ball to get across. It, it's nonsense. No, I get it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do like, um, I do like early, like Stanley, I think we can say, not a scientist. I do like his <laughs> yeah. sort of pop culture uh, interpretations of things like Einstein's theories. Oh, yeah. It's definitely just, it's all buzzwords. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's taking a real thing and then just like simplifying it and twisting it in this weird way. Um, it's kind of fun. Yeah, sure. So they go through this space-time warp, and they bust out the other end into a photographic montage. What's the word? Not montage. Collage. Uh, A photographic mosaic. Collage, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So they're using, like, real photographs that they've tinted and colored and overlaid to show the the beauty of the universe. And it it really works works for me here. This is definitely, like, the most experimental Kirby gets, I think. Yeah. Um, really in all of his Marvel work. And he, he does a similar trick, I think, in the pages of, like, Journey into Mystery. We'll see a little bit, too. Mm. Um, it's a... It it always... It renders weirdly to me digitally. Like, we're reading most of these comics through Marvel Unlimited, and I, yeah. I always get the feeling, like, man, if I was flipping through this thing way back when, like, I bet that's a knockout page. Whereas when you're flipping yeah. digitally, you're just like, oh, that's really different. You know, it's like, yeah. you can tell that, but you can't necessarily tell, like, the impact of it. Um, but yeah, it's a cool way that they're just, and, and I really like Stan Lee's proclamations on the page too, where he's like, <laughs> we had to go and get photographic evidence to show you that, you know, that they made this trip, which is like a really fun, silly, like, no, this is really happening. Winking at your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Which I like. So the Fantastic Four land on the Skrull homeworld. And they're immediately attacked by some Skrull soldiers. They try to fight back, but they soon realize that their powers are gone. All their powers are being sapped by the atmosphere. Uh, They get imprisoned, and Ben Grimm is trying to bust out of this prison, and he he punches the door. And the the sound effect that pops up says, WAP, as he punches his prison door. (laughs) And Ben Grimm says, WAP, did you hear that? Nothing but a puny WAP. Me who used to never get anything less than a badoom, or at least a kapow. <laughs> Which is a very funny little, like, meta-winking. That's like proto-Deadpool stuff right there. Oh, yeah, 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 I guess so. Um, so Reed Richards bargains with Morat, who has captured them. 
Morat is trying to keep the Fantastic Four to himself for exactly this purpose, to, to get some information out of them so that he can take over the Skrulls. Anel, meanwhile, goes to her father, the king, and kind of lets the cat out of the bag that Morat has these prisoners, and Reed Richards offers Morat a supreme weapon in exchange for their lives. The rest of the Fantastic Four are really upset with Reed, like, how could you betray us like this? Like, <laughs> they immediately lose all faith in Reed yeah. Richards. But Reed Richards gives Morat this enormous gun, Morat shoots the Morat decides to double cross the Fantastic Four and shoots all of them with this enormous gun. But Reed Richards was, you know, playing a prank and this gun returns the Fantastic Four's powers because that's something he just had <laughs> laying around. So they they are all rejuvenated and their powers are back. Uh, the king shows up and accuses Morat of treason for not turning in the Fantastic Four. Uh, Morat strikes out and the soldiers start firing on him. Anel runs in front of them to try to shield Morat from the soldier's fire, but Sue Storm pulled, puts a protective bubble around her, and Morat is Morat is killed. The king is grateful to the Fantastic Four for rescuing his daughter's life, so he says, "Though the very sight of you is repugnant to my eyes, you may ask any <laughs> boon of me." <laughs> Always a good way to start a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's how we started this podcast. I said. But the very sight of you is repugnant to my eyes. Do you want to start a podcast? <laughs> um, Reed Richards asks the king for justice for Sue Storm's father. And guess what? It was Morat who killed him. So justice has already been served. They get to leave. They hop back through the time warp. Which I feel like I would want to do over on that boon, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like You ask for something and then they're like, oh, it already happened. You're like, oh, well, can I have something else? <laughs> yeah, have, like, right. Some exactly. snacks for the road or something. <laughs> Uh, they get back to Earth just in time for the wedding rehearsal, which is very funny because it just shows that like Ben Grimm keeps interrupting it with his <laughs> with his loud sobbing. Yeah, uh, he won't stop crying throughout the wedding rehearsal. Uh, and that that's this issue with the Fantastic Four. It's pretty fun. Both I, I like both these Fantastic Four. Yeah, you see the you see Fantastic Four heating up in this time period. Um, you know, Lee and Kirby mm-hmm. are, are really starting to to gain steam on the title, and you just a lot's happening. And it's a, it's a nice, it's a really nice time, frankly, to jump in to FF, even if you haven't been along for the ride. Unlike Avengers 16, which we're going to read next, which I think is a, a clumsy execution of a good idea. Well, let's, let's talk about that because, so the next issue on our reading list was Avengers 16 and it's, it's important. This is the big new Avengers mm-hmm. issue. They literally call it new Avengers on the title. Um, there's a cover with suggestions of who these new Avengers on the team might be. Uh, and this is like the entire issue is a roster turnover. Who's going to be on the team issue. Mm-hmm. It is right. boring as paint drying uh, <laughs> as a story. I, I would be into it except that just like, I don't know, like the, the, the actual personalities are just not fleshed out. Like there still is just, not much difference between Captain America versus Tony Stark versus Hawkeye versus Quicksilver. Like, they're all just basically, like, ver- versus Giant Man. They're all just basically yeah. uh, heroic, noble, kind of boring men. You know, I do I do think that this lineup brings personality to the team and brings dynamics to the team in a way that they didn't yeah. have before. And we can talk about that as we sort of talk about the people who come on the team, but like it brings hostility, it brings arrogance, it brings like people who don't get along so well. Yeah. 
in a way that I think actually works as opposed to just like three successful leaders butting heads because they're all the leader, which isn't super compelling, at least the way it's been structured. I just read a bunch of Avengers that it happens after this for extra issues. And that's that it, I don't think it's great, but I think it gets significantly better just in the fact that they don't get along. And that in and of itself is some kind of drama that is right. is somewhat interesting. So right. anyway, let, let's get into the, the yeah. story. So Avengers 16 is Stan Lee, again, Jack Kirby layouts with Dick Ayers mm-hmm. art and Artie Semek letters. Uh, this is, again, another example of like this universe is getting deep. Issues before and after are becoming increasingly prevalent. This is a post-Avengers number 15 continuation mm-hmm. uh, where we have the Masters of Evil versus Thor, Iron Man, Ant-Man, and the Wasp is where our story begins. Now, I should – we've kind of – or I've kind of like skipped over the Masters of Evil in the MMY club. Zach, I know you're covering on extra issues. Uh, but the lineup yeah. we have here for the Masters of Evil is the Melter, Black Knight, Enchantress, and the executioner. Their names more or less explain their deal. I will call out <laughs> I will call out the enchantress and the executioner, uh, major players yeah. in Asgard and in Thorlor, and we're going to see mm. more of them because they're interesting. Yes. Melter and Black Knight, uh, this is more or less the Melter literally he just melts things. That's it. That is all there is to the Melter. And the Black Knight looks like kind of a King Arthur era Black Knight, but it's all just like future tech. Yeah, that, you know, and that and he writes like a genetically modified Pegasus. Pegasus, basically. right? Yeah, that that title will come back as the Black Knight will actually be a hero in Marvel later, but that's hmm, we're okay. we're a decade away from that. So they they like this one starts out with some action against fighting the Masters of Evil that just feels kind of like well we have to have a fight in here somewhere, and and Thor does this really ridiculous thing where like they're fighting on the street and they don't want to destroy the destroy the city. So Thor spins his hammer and zaps them all into a new universe, into some faraway universe, because he can teleport between universes with his hammer. Yeah, he whisks them all away to another dimension, which is like a crazy use of his powers. And also, why doesn't he just do this all the time? Well, he's also using time travel at this time. Like, the his hammer is really overpowered. Like, it should just be a very strong hammer that lets him fly. But no, he also can do, like, interdimensional travel and time travel with it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It is, the Mjolnir is extremely powerful at this point, as evidenced by whisking the team away to, uh, so they, to a, you know, another dimension where they ultimately dismiss of the Masters of Evil. Uh, with the exception of Entrancers and Executioner, who I'm, I'm pretty sure they bail on the fight before yeah, Thor yeah. does this. While they're in this uh, other dimension that kind of just looks like this barren moonscape, the Black Knight says, you can't do anything against us. You have sworn to never take a human life, which I guess is true, except not explicitly. You know, it's like, it doesn't feel like part of any of the Avengers ethos. Like, you know, the same way that Batman has it, that he'll never take a life. Uh-huh. Now, I, I'm not sure really where that comes from, except for the comic code. Like, yeah, <laughs> all the Avengers right. have sworn to the comic code not to take a life. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it's something that's really discussed so much as that is just heroes. If you're if you're a right, good guy yeah. at this point, that is not something you do. So as Avengers number 16 continues, uh, we cut to South America, where Captain America, Baron Zemo's one-on-one fight that ended in Avengers number 15, has come to a conclusion and it has ended in Baron Zemo's death. I do feel like we've done a slight disservice here to the original Baron Zemo. Uh, we skipped over his debut 
as he put together the Masters of Evil, and now we are cutting straight to his demise. Uh, that said, the Zemo mantle will be upheld in, I think, more interesting ways uh, as the Marvel Universe continues. Um, so that's that's why Captain America isn't with the Avengers, and we'll get more on him uh, in a moment. Essentially, he spends the issue trying to get from South America to America. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't even need to go in detail about that. It's a, it, it's a series of obstacles on his way of like finding a plane hitchhiking like finding his way back to new york city that that's a that's about all that happened so over that's the course of this it. issue we keep cutting back to captain america slowly making his way back to america yeah right so the avengers we cut back to avengers mansion and janet hank and and tony are all gathered around uh they mentioned that thor is missing for the trial of the gods in thor number 116 in a in an interesting and i think telling bit of like this character has something going on in his title that prevents him from being a part of the team. And that yeah. is that is in a nutshell why Avengers number 16 happens is because fans, Marvel fans were writing in to Stanley and the editorial team saying, how can how can Ant-Man be in this Avengers battle if he's also here? And and likewise with all mm-hmm. the other characters and basically after enough attempts at wrangling things like, oh, Thor's in the Trial of the Gods, and oh, wait, where is he? Can we use him in Avengers? Stan was just like, let's just use characters that don't have solo titles. Let's use yeah. different different teams because Captain oh, America's series was set in the in the um, 40s. So his solo series was fine because it was taking place during World War II. So basically it was right. just like to wrangle the continuity, they separated the team, <laughs> which is really interesting to me because now – marvel present day they don't do that at all yeah well except for thor thor stays on the team it's weird though because he he does stay on the team he's just absent for the rest of the year (laughs) well that's i guess that's the thing is he's elsewhere and they just kind of don't know his deal but he's not there to say i'm thinking about resigning which is kind of what happens next so iron man and man of the wasp they all kind of discuss disbanding and they're for different varying reasons but you know it's like i need a vacation i need a break i I think it's time to bring in some new people and kind of as they're talking about this or literally as they're talking about this hawkeye requests an audition with the avengers by breaking into the mansion and nearly killing jarvis (laughs) it's just it's insane like he he comes across as an insane person he's like they burst out into the the you know the the hallway jarvis is tied up and he's like wait 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 I'm just doing this to, uh, it was all a misunderstanding. I want to join the Avengers. I've always wanted to be a hero. And then he's like, <laughs> look, I'll even untie Jarvis. It's only fitting the man who tied him up will be the one who lets him free. And then he fires three arrows at Jarvis to like break his bonds. <laughs> Poor Jarvis. <laughs> I know. It's awful. I, I That's like walking into a, a gas station, pointing a gun at the manager and being like, hey, I really want this job. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I just needed to get your attention. Yeah, totally. It's it's completely bizarre, but like somehow also successful. I, I think it speaks to like Iron Man, Jan and, and Hank are so like are so game to not be Avengers anymore that they're like, yeah. oh yeah, this, this psychopath can join the team. Sure. Why not? And there, there's like this this rush for them to quit before Captain America gets back. <laughs> Like they want to, they, they don't want to be talked out of it or yeah. not allowed to. So they definitely, they're like, well, while Captain America's gone, there's no better time to rearrange the team. Yeah, totally. So the rest of the issue is really just like trying to put a team together. The Avengers submarine goes underwater and they ask Namor to join, which I think is completely nuts. Oh, I liked that a lot. I, oh, I, 
It's completely insane. He's tried to take over the world on numerous occasions. He's tried to wipe out Earth. He is known for for destroying like like millions of like at the at a minimum property in New York City. You know, <laughs> That's true. like he is a straight up Avengers uh, villain at this point. I think it's crazy. And they do mention like for a chance to redeem yourself, but. Man, is that a is that an olive branch? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I, I kind of liked it just uh, as a a an acknowledgement of Namor as being not quite trustworthy, but maybe redeemable. Yeah, no, it's true, and it yeah. does it definitely. No, but but, isn't but you are that will you are right. I just think at this point, it's like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and they also yeah. later consider the Hulk, who I would say has similar problems. Yeah, that that one makes less sense. I guess he technically like they count him as a founding Avenger. Which is always weird to me anyway. So we cut now to Wanda and Pietro, Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, and Pietro, the uh, Quicksilver. They have been previously in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but as we've sort of seen in the X-Men issues we have read and also here, like, they express tremendous reservation over their role in that. They feel like they were not really on board with Magneto's, you know, murderous Mm -hmm. plots, and they see the Avengers tryouts notice in the paper and they write them a form, a very formal letter explaining their interest in, <laughs> yeah. in joining the team. Cover letter, resume, the whole the whole works. So, um, Iron Man and Ant Man, or yeah, Iron Man, Ant Man, and the Wasp, uh, they transition to the new lineup. So Wanda and Pietro make their way to America, and Captain America, meanwhile, and Rick Jones, they you know they do finally arrive back in America, and. The issue is like 80% the press following Avengers news, you know? It's like, yeah. just, hey, what are they going to do? What's going to happen? And there's like, there's a nice cameo page of all the villains. I was just about to say. Yeah, yeah um, I like Doctor Doom, you know, following this news closely and seeing who are they going to add. And the issue ends with, you know, it's the announcement of the team lineup. So it's Cap stays on the team when he gets back because what else is he going to do? And it's him, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver in the new Avengers lineup. My favorite part is while they are like, when Cap and Rick Jones show up again, Rick Jones is like, oh, well, I hope I can be a full-time Avengers one day. <laughs> like, and they're all like, yeah, one day, Rick, you'll get there. <laughs> like, just keep uh, keep on with that CB radio. You'll you'll figure it out. For Rick, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I like the, I we talked about this before. I kind of like these shop talk issues of the avengers and x-men sometimes like i I like these somewhat staffing requirements yeah 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 and taking a step back and looking at the avengers as you know like a functioning institution rather than just constantly dealing with threats like it kind of at least puts it in the real world for me a little bit Mm. more but yeah i think i think this issue is pretty clumsy so next we read daredevil number seven written by stan lee and art by wally wood (laughs) surprisingly for a daredevil issue we immediately go to Atlantis, where Warlord Krang is whispering some poison in Namor's ear about invading the, the surface world. You know, the, the surface world is rightfully the Atlanteans, and we just need to take it by force. But Namor isn't really convinced by that he should do it by violent means. So he, he decides to go to Earth to present some new demands. Namor swims to the surface, and he walks down Main Street. With, like, people just running and screaming and hiding all around him because they remember last time he was here when he invaded New York <laughs> a year and a half ago or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, goes, he goes to a, a, a building full of law offices. There's a revolving door uh, facing the street, and he, like, he doesn't understand how it works, so he just walks through it yeah. and busts it all up. 
He gets to the elevator. He doesn't know how that works. And so he just like pulls open the doors and then grabs the cable and pulls the elevator down to him. <laughs> I would be so on board for Namor in an office building as the entire issue. Like, it's so funny. It's so like, just as just, a, it, you know, to use a bad metaphor, a fish out of water. You know, it's just all this stuff he doesn't understand. <laughs> and then like, it, it cuts, he, he's going to a, a lawyer's office, which turns out to be the offices of Murdoch and Nelson daredevil matt murdoch <laughs> he bursts through the door there like literally bursts through the door uh and shows up and <laughs> announces his intent to sue the human race he needs to he needs to get a lawyer so that he can sue all humanity uh murdoch and nelson are like well you can't there's no you can't just sue humans <laughs> um there's no like govern governing body you, this wouldn't you know you wouldn't be able to go to court with this he's <laughs> Namor's upset about this. He smashes their desk. <laughs> but eventually the lawyers convince him that he can't just have a general lawsuit against everyone uh, to get into court. I do like his ambition there. I, I love that he wants to just sue the human race, which is like, which is pretty wild too, that he's, it's like, how dare he come in and sue the human race when he's attacked them so many times? But I guess his claim is essentially like all the, the nuclear testing and all the damage they've done to the oceans mm-hmm. that have forced, right. you know, Atlantis out of out of their, you know, safe home world. Um, so he's he's trying to handle things by like, I guess, his version of diplomatic means. And it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting to see him even try that when he's been so brutish in the past. And it, it's funny because he just comes across as like very naive, which is, is kind of fun to see him in a, a slightly, um, I don't know, not not totally in his element right <laughs> um so he he tells nelson and murdoch he's gonna figure something out and then he just jumps through their wall yeah uh, matt murdoch goes and switches into his daredevil suit and this is the premiere of daredevil's hot new red suit which like thank god this happened so soon because i just uh, yellow and black i was not into it this red looks so good they, they use the shadows they use black on it really well and it just makes him look that much more sinister even even if his character is not that yet, his character is not the like dark brooding Matt Murdock no. we'll probably get to know. Uh, which you know, this is something I don't like about Daredevil at this point is he's basically just like any other superhero. He's doing a lot of witty one-liners and a lot of quips while he's fighting villains, and uh, it's not interesting. It's not it, it doesn't distinguish him at all. He's basically like just the same as Spider-Man or Johnny Storm, just with different powers. Yeah, I mean, he has like the narrative constructs to make him different in that he's blind and he's a lawyer but he doesn't yeah. behave all that differently yeah. um with the exception of like you know he can be matt Mur- murdoch in court i will i will mention too like yes i think the red costume is a huge improvement and that combined with the start of wally wood on art is a really mm-hmm. nice visual change of pace for daredevil i think wood is a he's a celebrated sort of like artist's artist I think in a lot of ways, like definitely you can tell that that people with an appreciation for art have a ton of respect for the work he would do. I, for yeah. my case, I think he really excels at like poses, but not mm-hmm. fluidity, you know, necessarily. Okay. Like I don't, I don't get a great sense of like fluid action with his art, yeah. but I do really like if he's drawing like Daredevil posing, it just looks cool. And I, the coloring mm-hmm. is, is a huge part of that here too. Yeah. So Daredevil is trying to follow Namor wherever he went, and he has this new cane that has, like, a grappling hook on it, basically. A United States Air Force plane is flying overhead, and Daredevil just, like, shoots his grappling hook up to it. At which point, the the pilots on the plane are like, oh, something just hit us. Oh, wait, it's just Daredevil. Make sure you fly steady. 
don't knock them off. <laughs> the United States Air Force is very on board with helping Daredevil this issue. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's very strange. It, like, makes him, like, we're seven issues in, but it, it's already saying, like, oh, yeah, the military loves this guy. He's a respected superhero. Yeah, that is strange. Which, which goes against what we probably think of later. So Namor is basically, like, smashing up the town, trying to get arrested so that he'll be able to go to court. <laughs> get his day in court. <laughs> it, and it kind of works eventually like he allows himself to be arrested even if he won't allow himself to be handcuffed <laughs> allow himself to be arrested and he goes to court where he kind of causes some havoc the judge tells him he has to they're going to postpone for a week and he starts like throwing bailiffs around <laughs> uh, but allows himself to be taken to jail matt murdoch tells him it's going to be a, a, a week until a week until his trial Oh, while he's in court, Dorma, who's like Namor's love interest down in Atlantis, shows up and tells him that in his absence, Warlord Krang has started a rebellion in Atlantis to take over. And eventually Namor just decides he's going to break out of jail and fight his way back to the sea, at which point Daredevil like fights him to distract him from killing some cops and soldiers, I guess. It, like This whole issue just feels like it falls apart as soon as... Namor comes to Earth to sue humans. It doesn't quite work out for him. And then he just needs to get back to Atlantis. And there's some fighting for not great reasons. It, it, it's, it, it's kind of a whole big mess. Yeah, it begins with some good ideas. And then yeah. it just goes off the rails it and devolves yeah. into the dumbest of superhero fights. I, I do appreciate, as Namor and Daredevil fight, that Daredevil loses pretty badly. Um, oh, yeah. Which I yeah. think is something that like Marvel... I don't think they shy away from actually too often where they're like the heroes of the books can lose. You know, I did. We definitely see it with yeah, Spider-Man right. uh, and Daredevil. It's like the heroism is in continuing to get up and try not mm -hmm, in actually right. winning here. And yeah. it's like it seems appropriate. Like Namor should be able to dismiss of Daredevil, I think, especially it, at this point in his career. Yeah. And Namor says something like he fought with a warrior's heart. I will just return to the sea without killing any cops. <laughs> 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 like so so he just flies off and goes back in the ocean yeah and basically nothing has changed nothing happened except that namor again came to new york city and just wrecked a bunch of property <laughs> and gave a bunch of cops concussions yeah the import here is just like again shared universe connections for daredevil some fun yeah. namor ideas at the start um and then like honestly that red costume in the start of wally wood on on the title yeah which brings us to i know it's your favorite issue i don't I'll, I'll share my thoughts as I go. Daredevil number eight. This is the, it's got a great cover. And you could throw this cover, I think, in like the modern Mark Wade Chris Samney era run. And I would totally believe it. Like, I really <sighs> think stylistically it fits. And I, I think that matters because covers are so Kirby focused that like Kirby's art becomes um, shorthand for 60s. I think in a lot of ways, like if you see a Kirby cover, you think 1960s. When I see this cover, I think like, yeah, that's that's a style that is like continuing today. So stop, stop beating around the bush. Tell them tell them what they're in for. Oh, there's still man on the cover. This is a Daredevil versus still man issue. A number god. of people have oh questioned god. why. <laughs> <laughs> why is, it is this issue? And namely Zach. Go ahead. No, it's just, you know, I mean, I don't have anything except to say you dave <laughs> like <laughs> making me read this <laughs> it's yeah I, uh, it's it's i i like you know i actually came into this with it with an 
with an open mind. Uh-huh. So I'm like, maybe there's something about the. No, it's just, it's just stilt man. He just has stilts. Like, I don't even think we need to go beat by beat on this. I mean, if, if you want to, this is your issue. So I'm going to do over. this one panel by panel. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> the thing about stilt man is that he has stilts that make him, like, super tall. He can, I don't know, super tall. 100, 200 feet, like, very, very tall. Yeah. And they're, they're these, like, extendable still but basically he just commits like sky crime in a way that he could just commit the same exact crimes on the ground like there's a helicopter carrying some cash so he just stilts his way up to it and holds a grenade and is like give me that money or i'll throw a grenade at you he could do that to an armored car on the ground wearing the same armor yeah exactly uh there's a what else does he do he like mostly he walks around the city after that <laughs> on right, which is like it also makes him that much more visible like <laughs> <laughs> it's just it doesn't make sense it's ridiculous the- so all right so let's let's interrogate this a little i think stilt man is hilarious i mean pa- page one though has a funny thing of like the the title of page one is yeah the stilt man cometh <laughs> <laughs> stilt man's good. hilarious i think he's an awesome d-list marvel villain um i think one one thing i like yeah. about this is we read a lot of the we read a lot of the like essential stuff and the big reveals and the big origins and this and that. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like you don't necessarily get as much of a taste of just like the meat or kind of the the like what else was happening in the universe. And I think Daredevil and Brady yeah. is like a really this is just like fill in the superhero quota <laughs> kind of book. It's a meat and potatoes story. You get a ridiculous new villain. It's a villain of the week book. I appreciate that, but like you also have skipped Baron Zemo and the Enchantress, <laughs> like to make room for Stiltman. Like, uh, okay, all right, I'm, I'm on board. I'm I'm relaxed. I mean, here's the thing: <laughs> if you if you agree that including Stiltman was worth it, go ahead and email us at mymarvelsyear at gmail.com, and we'll run your listener <laughs> feedback in the 65 feedback episode. Yeah, yeah, that's the 1965 poll. Should Dave be censured for <laughs> including Stiltman on this list? Yeah. If you don't agree, then then just write a letter to uh, to Marvel and let them know. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so I'm not going to do this this issue in a ton of detail, other than to say um, it's got kind of like an amazing fantasy structure, which is nice in that it's mm-hmm. got uh, Matt Murdock takes on the case of Wilbur Day, who is complaining that his boss, the sort of corporate bigwig inventor, has stolen his patents for his designs. And um, basically, as Daredevil is failing over and over again to try to apprehend Stiltman, and make no mistake about it, he loses constantly to this unbeatable foe. And uh, basically, Mm -hmm. Matt Murdock is simultaneously trying to figure out um, there's something off about Wilbur Day, right? He's kind of like he sort of believes him, but he's also like not totally sure if he's telling the truth. There's a nice, on page 11 of this issue, there's a really nice panel design to show heart rates and Matt and Matt Murdock's attempts to sort of mm-hmm. read them yeah. uh, to detect lies. So he's got Wilbur Day and the corporate yeah. inventor like standing next to each other and the panel overlays like three panels of a heart rate and basically you see it spike when somebody lies, mm-hmm. which I think is the first instance we've seen of this, and which is kind of a, a pretty familiar Daredevil trope if you if you know the character now. Um, but I really mm-hmm. like that panel design yeah. here at this point. There, there's a I, I liked the the opening scene of this issue, which is like there's a car running out of control 
and a, a woman screaming as this car comes careening towards her and daredevil is swinging down to like rescue the woman <laughs> and because he needs to hear where she is in order to swoop down and grab her and like to find her over the sound of this car he's just yelling keep screaming don't stop screaming <laughs> which is it out of context it is a very funny uh thing for a superhero to be like yelling out to someone that they're trying to yeah it's funny we get why he's doing it but it's also like that poor woman already terrified and then to have this nut in a red costume swoop down and yell at you to keep screaming just keep screaming it is that i love that whole opening sequence actually because it's not only does does daredevil tell this woman to scream but he then like hops into the car the run or he gets into the runaway vehicle and now you have daredevil blind as he is driving down the street like in this runaway car it's yeah. a it's a fun visual um and basically like just to tie the rope on that there's a bomb in that car which was a distraction by Stiltman, mm-hmm. which he sent way across town so that he could raise up and rob a helicopter commit sky crimes yeah without interference so pretty smart move by Stiltman. <laughs> yeah the most the most devious villain in all of Marvel. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this a bunch. I'm just, the way that they talk about blind people is still pretty condescending and pretty much like, I, I mean, the, the way that Americans talked about people with handicaps has changed so much since the 60s. So I, I'm not saying that Stanley specifically is being that insensitive. So, I mean, just having a blind superhero in and of itself is like a pretty interesting idea. But like, he, he has this thing where he says like, I could never ask Karen to marry a sightless man. Yeah. And that doesn't feel Daredevil specific. That just feels like, yeah, of course, like a noble man like him would never inflict his lifestyle upon a, a, a normal person. I, I feel like it's worth calling out because it's it's a little, um, yeah, it's a little insensitive. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's handled great. I do. I give Marvel a little credit in terms of representation, definitely with Daredevil and then yeah. like even like Alicia, you know, like they're characters. That, that's true. Yeah, they, they just don't they don't quite nail it. Like, I feel like. He didn't quite do his his legwork to find out what that experience is really like. But for for what it's worth, it, it is, uh, yeah, it, there is some kudos yeah. to be given. Yeah, no, I think it's fair. Uh, but Daredevil is also like one of four or five superheroes at the time who is just silently pining over women that they can't have because they won't let themselves. Iron Man, Peter Parker, Donald Blake, Daredevil, and maybe Professor X in a throwaway panel are all just like, I can never confess my love because I am whatever. I have a faulty heart. I have a limp leg. I'm blind. That like, it's getting old. The fact that this thing reoccurs over and over again and is happening to such length. So I'm I'm looking forward to like these relationships. We got about five more years of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward. I I think Spider-Man breaks out of that the soonest. Like he starts having like interesting relationships with women a bunch of different women right like it's it's getting real crowded over in amazing spider-man yeah <laughs> the amount of women showing yeah. up yeah no so, that's um, it's a it's a romance like it's from i think it comes from like stan lee's time writing romance comics before he was doing yeah. superheroes it's like and I, I actually think it adds a layer that i kind of like it's this kind of operatic romance stuff i mean yes it becomes it, it's repetitive i i wouldn't mind it it's just the same exact beat yeah for every hero. Yeah. Like, they, they literally are saying, like, you could interchange their dialogue and it's the same exact, like, woe is me. Yeah. Which maybe for one of them would be fine, but for five of them is it's boring. Yeah. So that actually ties into the end of this comic. Um, so Daredevil versus Stiltman. Uh, Wilbur Day tries to trick Daredevil into thinking it was the inventor who Stiltman. Turns out it was actually it was actually Wilbur Day all along who could have seen mm-hmm. that coming. And Daredevil then fights Stiltman. 
there's a shrinking ray that Day has stolen from from Claxton, the inventor, and Daredevil yep. turns it on on Stiltman, who then shrinks into nothingness. The ultimate reversal and twist of of ironic fate for the world's tallest <laughs> stilt man how many people have shrunk into nothingness on this <laughs> marvel so far yeah so many and and knowing that this isn't the end of stilt man it's also like it's also the least conclusive dismissal of a villain <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's two other things i wanted to mention daredevil shows that like his mask is full of circuitry at this point mm-hmm. that it's all hooked up to a bunch of radios apparently and that his little horns are antennae <laughs> One of my favorite details is that the <laughs> horns on his head are two antennas. That's why you got him. Um, yeah. And then uh, th- there's one line I wanted to call out where Daredevil is fighting Stiltman out out in the streets. And uh, he's just trying to climb up Stiltman's leg. And Stiltman says, at the press of a button, I can instantly grease my stilts. <laughs> and grease just starts pouring down his legs. He's unbeatable. Uh, it's, it, that, was, that was almost... That almost made this issue worth reading the issue ends with um to get to get what you're saying about like disabilities karen page is furious with matt murdoch for refusing to get experimental site surgery and oh, right basically like this is kind of an ongoing like frankly very strange narrative thread where there's this opportunity for this experimental surgery matt murdoch doesn't want to do it because he doesn't know how it's going to mess with his daredevil powers essentially mm-hmm. um but karen thinks he's like too cowardly to get surgery. And the implication here is clear that if he got the surgery and could see, then they could have a happy, healthy romance. Um, right, so yeah. it's, I found it really distasteful. Uh, yeah, it, sure. it makes Karen seem really petty, I think. But it's the same exact sense. Like Daredevil thinks the same thing. Yeah. Like Matt Murdock is also thinking like, well, I can't ask her to marry me if I can't see her. I, Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It, it's like, it just implies that like, blind people can't be married <laughs> I, yeah except to other blind people i don't i don't know what the implication is if you dig into that yeah right <laughs> so next up we read i would say my favorite issue of the my marvelous year reading list so far yeah which is surprising because i haven't particularly been enjoying uncanny x-men so far but i really like this one yeah this is the first one i can say i just enjoyed without qualification without saying like yeah for a silver age comic it's pretty good right like i just liked this one uh it's got this great cover of advertising the juggernaut and the origin of professor x and you see the juggernaut from behind so you don't get a full view of him but this big armor clad guy bursting out of the ground with uh huge muscles so the the x-men rush into professor x's room because cerebro is ringing out loudly scott summers is worried that the rest of the x-men are going to find out about cerebro because apparently it's been a secret from them well if you remember when when professor x turned the team over to scott or kind of yep. made him the leader. He he, you know, reveals the secret of Cerebro. But yeah, so he no one else has been told to this point. Although, if apparently it's just been like a klaxon alarm <laughs> when a bad guy <laughs> right. shows up, how did the team not notice this? I'm not really clear. There's a really funny line where Professor X says, "It's all right, Cyclops. Let them enter. We're about to face our most deadly threat. We can have no secrets from each other now." Which is like, who boy is. Is that going to uh, come to be proved a lie? Yeah. Like, All right. <laughs> that Professor X is done keeping secrets. So uh, Professor X says, like, Cerebro has never reacted like this. We have to prepare for an attack from an incredibly strong foe. So the X-Men go out to, to make some fortifications of the X-Mansion. So Iceman makes this giant ice wall. Angel and Beast hollow out these logs and then, like, fill them full of grenades. 
uh, Professor X just has a huge stockpile of grenades. And they're like, what's in these grenades? I don't know. They, they like sort of start to question whether or not they're about to kill people and then just immediately <laughs> right. dismiss it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Cyclops digs this huge trench in the earth with his eye beams and then they, they rig it up with electrical wire. <laughs> and then Jean uses her incredible telekinetic powers to cover the trench with twigs and leaves. <laughs> Which is a really good use of Jean Grey's powers. Yeah. Back in the mansion, Professor X reveals that he knows who this mutant is. It's his brother. And he starts to tell the story of his life. Professor X's father was a scientist working on nuclear bombs when he was killed by a nuclear bomb test. (laughs) At the funeral, one of his father's co-workers, uh, Dr. Marco, is like flirting with his mom. (laughs) You know Will Ferrell's character in Wedding Crashers? That's that's Professor (laughs) X's stepdad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, so eventually uh, this guy, Dr. Marco, who worked with Professor X's dad, marries his mom. You get to see that he has a son already, um, this this older boy who's a real bully, and his name is Cain Marco. So Xavier and Cain Marco don't get along as children. Throughout the story, we keep cutting back. So cutting back to the present. Back in the present, whatever is approaching has just burst through the ice wall, and the whole mansion is shaking and rumbling. So it's really building up the tension for whatever is coming. X's story continues. He overhears Kane Marco accusing his father of having killed Professor X's father. Xavier bursts in and says, I heard everything. <laughs> At which point Kane Marco knocks over a bunch of chemicals and <laughs> starts a fire. Dr. Marco, at risk of his own life, drags Kane Marco and Xavier out to safety and uh, is dying because of the burns. And he confesses to Xavier that while he didn't kill his father, he also didn't save him either. He just kind of left him to die so that he could uh, marry his mother. It is like it's one. It's like his one decent act, sort of in his last moments, basically. And he's like he does save Charles' life, um, even though he yeah. never really cared for him and like sort of killed his dad. <laughs> yeah. So back in the present, whatever whatever is approaching has fallen into this trench and uh, and grabbed the electrical wire and just snapped it with its bare hand. I will just to call out like structurally. The tension of the threat approaching the X-Mansion is so well executed throughout this issue. And, like, you get the alternate. It just never lets up. Like, it's the whole issue is tense. You never see the face or the form of the villain until the very last panel. I mean, literally the last panel. It's a bummer they put it on the cover, (laughs) honestly, because, like, the buildup is really good. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like... If you're reading this for the first time, as it's coming out in '65, you don't know yeah. this. You don't know the Juggernaut at all. Yeah. But you do. That cover almost reveals too much, even though I, I do like it. Um, I do. Just yeah. While I've while I've paused us, I want to call out too, Stan Lee writing Kirby layouts, Alex Toth pencils, and Alex Toth hmm. caught my eye because I'm like, I think I know that name. I think he's the Flash Gordon guy, and I looked this huh. up, and no, that's Alex Raymond who did Flash Gordon okay. art. But what I found. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what I found is that Alex Toth, uh, he did a bunch of DC work in the late 40s to early 50s, and he was a Hanna-Barbera storyboard artist who created Space Ghost. Oh, interesting. He also worked as a producer on Super Friends, the DC show in 1973. So he's got this really interesting, varied comics career, and yeah. I had no idea he had penciled uh, this fantastic issue of Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that is pretty interesting. Uh, just seeing that crossover from the cross-pollination between DC and Marvel. Yeah. Um, so Professor X continues his story. Soon after Dr. Marco's death, uh, Xavier, as a teenager, realizes he's got these 
brain powers. <laughs> he can read people's minds. Um, and he says that they were caused by the radiation that his parents were exposed to living near all these nuclear testing sites, which is pretty interesting because I think generally mutants are not supposed to be a direct result of like direct radiation. Well, they're the, they're the children of the atomic age. Yeah. 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 I guess they just like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe I just don't know that much about <laughs> the, the X-Men. I mean, I think that's where the expression like battle the atom. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard children of the atom. Okay. Um, so I guess maybe this is the first real, like, real drawing of that line. Yeah, it's a clear glimpse into it. So, uh, but the, the, the onset of these telepathic powers also caused poor teenage Xavier to lose all of his hair. (laughs) Um, and then it shows that Kane Marco is still, like, being a nasty bully, even moving into their teen years. Uh, But Professor X keeps reasserting that Kane Marco was not born a mutant, and he was not born with any powers, which is interesting, because he's saying, like, my brother is approaching... It's the most powerful mutant we've ever fought. But then also, like, during the story, he's saying, like, but he doesn't have powers. So, he, you know, he's just, just doing a really good job of building up the mystery of what is happening. But there is also some, like, is he a mutant or not confusion. Yeah, maybe he doesn't say, well, Cerebro's picking up on him, but I don't know if it explicitly says a mutant, that he's a, or if Professor X specifically says he's a mutant. Yeah, it's, a, it's left a little ambiguous here. So Kane Marco, back when they are, like, they're in their late teens decides you know he's going to show the the goody two-shoes xavier he's going to show him up and uh teach him a lesson about being all haughty and superior and he takes him on this joyride this convertible just whipping around these canyon roads until he loses control of the car and it plummets off a cliff uh kane marco leaps out of the car before it goes over but xavier is still in the car and i know what you're thinking oh wow this explains how Professor X lost the it, use of his legs. Surely, yes. It totally, totally makes sense. We're reading the origin of Professor X. This seems like thematically relevant. Gotcha. Okay. Next panel, Jean Grey is like, Professor, is that how you lost the use of your legs? And Professor X says, no, that's a story for another time. I lost them to a man named Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Ugh. Who is Lucifer? What is... So, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Lucifer. We don't talk about Lucifer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I saw that. He doesn't pop up in the list. No, no. We're going we're gonna to bypass that. I'll end up covering him on extra issues just for people who really want to dig into, you know, the history of this. But, oh, you were going to say why you don't cover him? Uh, I wasn't, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, so Lucifer gets retconned. And in okay. a better way, um, once we get to the Claremont era of X-Men, which is the Professor X origin that, frankly, every X-Men fan needs to understand. So we're going to go with that version instead of this. But yes, it is funny that they're saving they're saving him for later. You know, they're they're. I even went up. on the Wikipedia to read like what this story is that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's just so like unsatisfying. Yeah, it's just it's nothing. But it just it. it Compared to this, where it's just like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like, it's a villain from his past. It builds up this guy as the villain because he, you know, paralyzed Professor X. And nope. Okay. All right. Moving on. That 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 is actually, I'd say, the strongest like flub in this issue <laughs> is is that wasted opportunity. So uh, yeah, outside, all these grenades all launch up into the air and are set off. And it turns out they're full of sleeping gas. So phew, Angel and Beast are not murderers. But but whatever they're hitting is not affected by the sleeping gas, and it's still coming through. Uh, the, Xavier tells the X-Men that 
Kane Marco and him were both in the Korean War, but Kane Marco was a coward and he ran from battle. He deserted and he ran into this cave and found the lost temple of Sidorak, ancient temple with all this like demonic imagery. And there's this big glowing ruby in the center of a center of a statue that Kane Marco plucks up. It has the inscription, whosoever touches this gem shall possess the power of the crimson bands of Sidorak. Henceforth, you who read these words shall become forevermore a human juggernaut. <laughs> you get some good like uh, mythological crossover here. I think, where yeah. we've seen Doctor Strange summon the Crimson Bands of Sidorak before. Mm-hmm. So, like, that is something that has been referenced. And then also that uh, phrasing is very, very similar to what we've seen on Mjolnir as far yep. as Thor's worthiness goes. Yeah. This was a little surprising to me the first time I read it. Because, so Juggernaut's, I mean, I know Juggernaut from the old cartoon. Yeah. I didn't know, he's not, he's not a traditional mutant, right? Like, his powers are magical in nature. Yeah. Which is interesting. I think it rubbed me the wrong way the first time I read this. It's grown on me a little bit more. It feels it feels kind of jarring, I guess, if just if you have any idea of who this guy is. And it, it just feels strange. Like, why wouldn't he just have been a mutant? But anyway, so yeah, Sidorak, uh, Professor X says, Sidorak is the most mysterious of all the deities of black magic driven from this world. And finally, all this build up to the final page is Jugger- Juggernaut bursting through the door and showing up and looking pretty cool pretty imposing uh not not as big as he will in the future again like yeah i I feel like uh i don't know if it was jack kirby or stanley just with like the hulk and juggernaut they're not quite comfortable making like them huge yet right they're still yeah they're like six five (laughs) 280 pounds right like they're big guys but they're they're like terry cruz big (laughs) yeah i mean i joked when i shared out the cover on social that like this is kind of the start of like 90s style extreme arms because juggernauts muscles on that cover they really stand out compared to the way the rest of the 60s art is like they Mm -hmm. are preposterously large in the way that i think we we actually just sort of accept like yeah that's how you draw juggernaut um but that's that style is not so common at this point like you're saying like hulk is just the biggest guy at your gym you know is the is the joke you made most of the superheroes i just had that thought of like they're none of them are that muscular like they all look uh, they look fit <laughs> right like but uh even the occasional times you see like captain america or spider-man without a shirt on like yeah they've got they have roughly a six-pack you know, they, they look like they've got some definition. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on this, but I do think like, I don't know, it it's kind of a joke now. But when you talk about like yeah. James Bond as the yeah. iconic masculine ideal and then it's Sean Connery with like, you know, kind of a, a belly bond. and like flat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. It's like the just perception of muscles like wasn't yeah. wasn't the and same. if they were attractive right like having a big muscular guy was actually attractive or not yeah it, i don't know it's just a different perception and like the, like juggernaut will beef up but yeah it'll it takes some time yeah it'll be interesting to see how that like how that progresses um yeah so it just ends there it ends with the juggernaut finally bursting through the door and uh and that's the end of this i think like the tension in the storytelling if not the actual like lore building this this is a great issue. Yeah, I absolutely love Uncanny X-Men number 12. I think, to your point about being the best thing we've read so far, I'd be hard-pressed to disagree. Like, the tension and... It, plus, it's, yeah, like you're saying, like, the lore building with X-Men. Yeah. I mean, all that Professor X stuff is... If you've been reading X-Men and you're curious, like, what's mm-hmm. Professor X's deal? Like, this is what you've been waiting for. Um, so it, it really pays off. So but that continues straight into Uncanny X-Men number 13. 
And this is Stanley Kirby layouts again, but this time Jay Gavin on pencils, Sinet on inks, and Sam Rosen on letters. Um, Professor X realizes his mutant brain can't impact Juggernaut's psionic helmet. So he's kind of got the, the Magneto thing going on where Professor X is effectively useless against his helmet. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, this entire issue is the X-Men fighting Juggernaut in the mansion. And yeah. I think I like 12 better because of the way that it's blending tension and origin. Um, but 13 is like, if you're into the action component of it, this is the payoff, I guess, where they sort of deal with the ramifications of him being there. It's it's a, it's the first solid like X-Men team fight I've seen. Yeah. They like weave in and out, like give each other breaks, which I kind of like. They, they kind of like attack him two at a time while the rest of the team retreats and uh, supports Professor X, who's trying to reach out to other superheroes. It, I, I, it definitely is not as good as 12. But yeah, it's it's pretty fun. And uh, it's weird, though, like Professor X is really trying to get hold of Johnny Storm. <laughs> some yeah. reason throughout this. Like the juggernaut is basically unstoppable. It's kind of like that Fantastic Four Hulk issue we read, where it's just like, they just can't stop this guy. They will yeah. not be able to stop him. And he just seems like the best they can do is slow him down. And they do a good job of conveying that. He is unstoppable. But Professor X has retreated and is just trying to get Johnny Storm there. And it feels so weird and out of place. Like, (laughs) he really needs Johnny Storm's help, who shows up. And basically, this issue ends with Johnny Storm just shows up and blinds the Juggernaut with his flare powers. While Beast has, like, loosened his helmet, Juggernaut's helmet, and Angel flies down and swoops it off his head. It's kind of of the classic way to take out juggernaut like this is the yeah. the version of winning against juggernaut that every comic from here on after has to try to creatively change <laughs> yeah <laughs> because right. it can't just be taking his helmet off every time um yeah. I, I will mention that like so in order to get in contact with the torch um professor x like he he pretty quickly bails on the battle and the team in order to use all this technology he's got to mentally broadcast out to like the shared Marvel superhero universe. So like, Mm -hmm. he's not necessarily trying to contact the torch directly. He's putting out a call, like pretty much an SOS to anyone who will receive it. And we Mm -hmm. get some cameos of, of heroes, like kind of hearing the summons, but also being like, Hmm, don't really know what that was about. And then Johnny, he actually contacts twice. Just my old brain messing up again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and he actually contacts Johnny twice, and and then yeah. the second time is able to like convince him to come and help. Which, without the torch's participation, uh, the X Men, I think, pretty safe to say, would have lost. Um, one detail I do want to add real quick, just from like the fight scenes, which I actually kind of like you're saying. I think this does probably the best job we've seen of like the original X Men. One, just like showing their heroism as they fight this yeah. unstoppable force, but also of playing together. And one moment I really like is Gene and Cyclops, in order to buy themselves some time, like right at the start of the action, they drop Juggernaut basically down a hole and yeah. uh, like to the bottom of the X-Mansion. And as this happens, like as the team's kind of talking about what to do, Iceman's just dropping big snowballs on him. <laughs> so like yeah. really just annoying him and making him chilly, which I, I really appreciated. Yeah. yeah, good job. I, I was just thinking, though, it's kind of interesting that we had such growth of all these different heroes the first couple of years. We had all these this this big burst of new superheroes, and I think this is about where it stays until the the like the actual series and heroes that are being built up here, right? Like uh, we've got you know X Men, Avengers, Spider Man, Fantastic Four, Ant Man, Iron Man, Cap. 
and there's you know they kept adding new titles adding new titles the first couple of years and i think it stays pretty static for the next few years like yeah. it's going to be until i think 68 or 69 until we start seeing more titles added right they have this big period of growth and then i think which is good like i love that they just build up this universe and they find foundational work because that was something with the golden ages they never stuck with anything like they were just flitting from one series to the next over and over again right and nothing ever got built up because they didn't commit to it long enough yeah I, we're in danger of of a much bigger discussion but I, it's one of the interesting things about shared universes is like yeah there's that thrill of the new and then uh-huh. the biggest challenge always and from everything from like something like a valiant comics to like even like dc launching the new 52 is once you hit like issue 15 what yeah. is your selling point like because at right. a certain point you're going to run into all the challenges of long ongoing series and that's where marvel is entering now where fantastic four is approaching 40 issues right and it's just like now you have a lot going on do you keep riding that wave do you launch new things and it's in marvel's case i think like you're saying they keep riding the wave and they keep building it and i think at this point in time that's the right call is pretty successful yeah yeah i mean because fantastic four and spider-man and uh and journey into mystery are all starting to like build out that world mm-hmm. you know they they had they established these characters in the world they live in and now they're really just fleshing that out in all kinds of interesting ways and it will be another 10 years before x-men does the same with the exception of this because i think juggernaut's a, a pretty fun addition to like the base lore of this whole world definitely definitely all right yeah if i get too distracted we can <laughs> let's move on to amazing spider-man number 26 so in the last issue spider-man lost his costume in a fight with the spider slayer and then he got he went home to try to find his cost his spare costume, which Aunt May had found and confiscated. He covered it up by saying that, you know, he bought a Spider-Man costume to wear to parties or something, and she said, Oh, you can't do that. You're too frail for that. <laughs> uh, so she she has hidden his costume, so now he is a Spider-Man without a costume. Uh the main like crime plot here is that there is there's a criminal called the Crime Master. It's a ridiculous name. Uh, and him and Green Goblin have apparently formed a pact together to work and take over all the all the gangs in New York City. <laughs> and they have revealed each other's identities to one another in order to, like, seal this pact. But now they are they are at odds with one another and, like, using it to keep each other from from revealing the other one's identity. Yeah. And the Crime Master is kind of a proto kingpin. You know, so yeah. he's like, you know, the he's kind of the, the crime master, classic gangster. I actually really like his costume as sort of a, um, <laughs> as kind of like an early Rorschach, you know, like Watchmen style. I was going to make that comparison. Yeah, he kind of looks a little like Rorschach, yeah. I actually think he's a cooler Rorschach. <laughs> oh, okay. Shots Bold fired. opinion. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it shows the, the crime master leaving this meeting with the Green Goblin where the two of them are, you know, at a, a stalemate with each other. And he goes back and it kind of... The comic cuts to Fredwick Foswell's apartment, who's this reporter for the Daily Bugle. Um, I don't know if we've talked about him, but he is he's working for the Daily Bugle. He was an ex-convict who used to work with the mobs, and J. Jonah Jameson has hired him as his crime reporter. Against a lot of uh, a lot of people are like, how could you hire a criminal? And J. Jonah Jameson says, you know, you know, I'm I'm all about giving people second chances. I'm all heart. It is um it does seem slightly it seems odd for Jonah. That he actually, he, it's something that he would do. Um, well, Foswell gives him good scoops because he's familiar with the criminal underworld. You know, good scoops and cheap, I guess, or, or Jonah's yeah. language. Yeah. Uh, so it shows Frederick Foswell in his apartment take off some costume that we don't see and hide it in a, a hidden compartment in his apartment. 
making it look like he is indeed the crime master. Yeah, it it actually really sets this up like I thought unambiguously, and I've read this before. <laughs> like it really sets up like he's the crime master. And one I thing I'll so call too. out here is he's. <laughs> I had to. I read. I went back to this page because I was like, wait, it did. Sh- it did show that he's the crime master, right? Am I missing something? Yeah. Is he triple crossing them? Like, <laughs> right, right. So it's like it's a hard red herring. And um, I just to mention, like, he was revealed as a criminal previously called the Big Man. In yeah, uh, he's he's actually I think the <laughs> guy names. who like yeah, it's like a less cool crime master in one of the earlier yeah. AMS issues. Yeah, the Big Man and Crime Master, like <laughs> Crime Master, I mind less, but the Big Man is that's yeah. a tough one to pull off. I hey. More power to you if you can do it. So he's the crime master is basically trying to take over the gangs through intimidation, like blowing up their cars, throwing fake bombs through their windows to say, like, look how easily I can get to you. Which is almost polite. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so at the Daily Bugle, Peter Parker's there and Betty Brandt is annoyed with Peter Parker because <laughs> Peter Parker has been... Again. Oh, yeah. Because Peter Parker has been helping J. Jonah Jameson, like, track down Spider-Man. In the last issue, Peter Parker was like... He was egging JJJ on with this spider slayer, thinking it was all a big gag. Uh, but then it turned out to be something serious. And uh, so Betty Brandt is like, Betty Brandt has come around on Spider-Man since Spider-Man Annual number one. She has kind of come to see him as a sympathetic figure who is not as bad as, as maybe she chalked him up to be. She's also upset because she thinks he's dating Liz Allen. And she went to his house at one point and Mary Jane Watson was there, who... We saw we saw everything except her face. Basically, her face was covered up by by like a single flower. <laughs> it was drooped in front of her face. So they're still building up like who this Mary Jane Watson woman is. Peter Parker needs to get a new Spider-Man costume. And a fun little tie-in with the new Enter the Spider-Verse movie. He walks into a costume shop and just buys one off the rack. Yeah. <laughs> I like the, uh, there's a really funny joke of the guy saying, should I box it up for you or are you going to wear it out? <laughs> um. And, and it's funny because he puts it on and it immediately just starts like riding up his ankles and his wrists because it's just a, a cheap costume. <laughs> so half this issue, Spider-Man's like stomach, wrists and ankles are exposed because the costume keeps coming off. Yeah, I really love him wearing this this costume issue. Oh, it's so it's kind of a it's like a gag that, you know, we'll see a few times. But it it's plays really into funny. The plot. It does. It does. It plays yeah. in the plot in a really fun way because he, he puts some webbing underneath the costume to hold it down to his skin which will come up later yeah but definitely some of my absolute favorite panels where it's like just this bunched up you know he he looks he looks less like the muscular teen with superpowers and more like the schlubby sort of old man yeah 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 like it almost looks like his guts hanging out Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh spider-man suspects frederick foswell he's one of these people who doesn't think that uh people who have served their time and repaid their debt to society or owed a second chance. <laughs> and uh, he just still suspect, suspects Frederick Foswell. So he goes to his apartment and the crime master fires at Spider-Man from outside the apartment. They have a brawl, but the crime master escapes. So at the docks, the crime master has like convened a meeting of all the mobsters and he's trying to take over all organized crime. While he's doing this, the Green Goblin stumbles across Spider-Man, just like incidentally, and they have this fight outside the green goblin is flying on this glider now which is as opposed to a flying broom like a witch like he was doing before um but the green goblin knocks him unconscious and this is kind of fun because he's like well now to unmask spider-man and he goes to try to take his mask off but he can't remove it because it's webbed onto his own face so 
he's like, well, I'll deal with that later. He picks up Spider-Man's unconscious body and goes into this meeting of the mob with the crime master and says, why follow that guy? Follow me. I defeated Spider-Man and like plops his unconscious body down wrapped in chains. Yeah, it's really fun. Like it wrap this issue. This issue is really good. It weaves so many different threads together mm-hmm. uh, of Spider-Man's life and really seamlessly. I, I, I think that's what this this comic is really excelling at is that you've got like Peter Parker's different relationships with so many different people and his personal life and his crime fighting life weave together so seamlessly and also affect one another in really interesting ways and this is this is a really good illustration of that yeah it's a really good point i I do think spidey weaves plot threads better than anything marvel is doing at this point i did want to call it too at the end of ams in the letters column oh i'm gonna read a bunch of these i I actually (laughs) i'm I'm not gonna yeah no i'm sorry but like there are a ton of really good letters here and and i actually need to read a few a few little excerpts if if you don't mind me (laughs) well before you do the experts excerpts let me mention there's a letter here from steve gerber who would go on to write a bunch of comics for Marvel, including oh, Defenders oh, and Howard the Duck. Okay, I, I was going to read read his. Where, where is that one? Yeah, he suggests the crossover between Millie the Model and Patsy Walker. Yes, yes, I really like that. Yeah. Like saying that, uh, yeah, I, I covered a Millie. The, there's only one issue of Millie the Model on Marvel Unlimited, and I'm covering it in this year's extra issues because it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> there's another Steve here who complains that Peter Parker's only wearing blue suits. <laughs> fair fair complaint steve i don't mean to cramp your style but i think peter should have at least one or two new suits (laughs) yeah oh i was gonna i have i just have written in my notes to read steve's letter there are three different steves writing in (laughs) this issue steve i have to figure out which yeah i think it was that millie the model one that i was gonna read uh yeah that's really good just like an interesting like cross universe with your romance comics and have spider-man show up in millie the model which is it's kind of a fun idea the other one I really wanted to point out is this guy, Joseph, who's basically like, you know how like Dr. Doom and Ramatut have this like, is that me from the past? Yeah. I kind of feel like uh, <laughs> maybe Joseph is, is my Ramatut. Yeah. Uh, With your kind permission, may I say a few words concerning your magazines? I feel I can do this because I've been reading them for over eight years. I would like to tell you what I like and dislike about your comics. <laughs> your paper inking and lettering are not as good as your competitors in the same line as work of yours. Your plots are very good, though, and so are some of your villains. He lists a bunch of them. Why do you ruin a good hero or villain by introducing atomic rays and gamma rays in their origins? (laughs) Which is like, yeah, right on. Like, (laughs) I'm saying the same thing. Why can't your teams work better together? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like, this guy is, uh, these are the same exact things I've been saying. But then I love how, like, specific he gets. He just says, your best issues to date are, and then he just lists a bunch of numbers. (laughs) Like, 4, 5, 12, 16, 17, 19, 20. Like, (laughs) it is very funny the the length at which they, they write these letters and the specificity of their complaints. Don't get me wrong, I never miss a single issue of In Your Comics, but I still think your competitors are superior to yours. I will expect a sane and serious answer from you on this matter. (laughs) This guy must have the most incredible comics collection, if he had every Marvel issue, and also all of DC, apparently. And hates them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I really really love that one. Oh, someone, someone is mentioning, there's a bunch talking about the Merry Marvel Marching Society, which is like the Marvel fan club at the time. But they mention a record. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I I mean, kind of. Um, I know that Marvel and the bullpen cut like a, you know, like an album. And yeah. it's, 
I don't know. It's it's like a gag. I mean, it's like hijinks and jokes and kind of like a variety hour thing. I know I remember yeah. reading about it. I haven't listened to it, but I know reading about it that there's a gag in there about like um like Steve Dicko being too shy to come on, which probably like <laughs> infuriated him in real life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll uh, yeah. I'll, I'll search for some and uh, I'll try to clip some in right here if I can find it. Okay, out there in Marvelland, face front. This is Stan Lee speaking. You've probably never heard a record like this before because no one would be nutty enough to make one with a bunch of offbeat artists. So anything is liable to happen. Hey, who made you a disc jockey, Lee? Well, well, Jolly Jack Kirby. Say a few words to the fans, Jackson. Okay, a few words. Look, pal. I'll take care of the humor around here. You, you've been using the same gags over and over for years. Well, you can't accuse me of being fickle, can you? By the way, Jack. The readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again. What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw her bald-headed. Boy, I'm glad we caught you and you were in a good mood. Oh, Stan, do you have a few minutes? For our fabulous gal Friday? Sure. Say hello to the fans, Flo Steinberg. Hello, fans. It's very nice to meet you. As Marvel's corresponding secretary, I feel as though I know most of you from your letters. By the way, Saul Brodsky wants to say a few words. Saul Brodsky? Who's he? Stan, the fans know you have a bad memory by all the mistakes you make, but this is ridiculous. He's been your associate for years. Really? We ought to start paying him one of these days. Um, okay. So, uh, sorry to distract us. That letter just, like, that letter was very funny to me. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 27 picks up right where we left off with Spider-Man in chains at the feet of the Green Goblin and the Crime Master. Yeah, and this one's got one of my least favorite story titles, Bring Back My Goblin to Me. Like, it just doesn't, <laughs> I just don't get it. Like, it doesn't, is not like a reference to something. It just sounds clunky. I, I don't like it. Oh, no, it's, it's, a uh, it's Bring Back My Bonnie to Me. What is that? It's a, it's an old, uh, I don't know, it's an old children's song. You know that one? I'm still out. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, that makes a little more sense that it is actually some sort of reference. I mean, it's a very dated kid song. Like, I don't know why my mother <laughs> would sing it, but I think it's I think it's like a, a World War Two thing. Like, or okay. maybe World War One of like bring back my sweetheart. Maybe uh, I might be totally wrong. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, but um, I mean, it still doesn't make sense to bring back my goblin to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. But that makes sense. Um, okay. So we got Stanley, Steve Ditko, Art Zemeck. Um, the Goblin begins asserting his dominance over all the gangs. They all seem to mostly agree since he has captured Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, Spider-Man wakes up and he fights basically the gangs of New York in chains, which is kind of nice. This is a really good fight. Yeah, it's yeah. really fun, like showing him tied up and still. It's a really like physical brawl. Mm-hmm. And eventually, eventually the cops show up too, and it turns into just this like all-out mayhem that still really works and has a like, nice cohesion to it. Yeah. Oh, that, that brings up something I wanted to say. Did you notice that 1965 is the year that black people start to exist in the Marvel Universe? You know, I actually did because the coloring is kind of wonky. Oh, Um, I mean, it it is a little wonky. It's not like the best coloring for black people, Uh, which, you know, I don't know how much that's production versus uh, lack of care. Right. But like, I mean, it makes sense. Right. The civil rights era is really ramping up. Right now, this is the year that Malcolm X is assassinated. Uh, yeah. You know, so like we're right in the thick of it. And it, it kind of makes sense that they're trying to, you know, not fall too far behind, um, you know, culturally. No, no one in supporting roles, but like the principal's assistant at Peter Parker's school who comes out to speak to him. One of the cops, like it's just now like when you see groups of people, there's some people of color mixed in there, which we didn't see before. Yeah, that's a really good call out. 
yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and I'll I, be excited to see, you know, <laughs> more of that, like, with actual speaking roles. Right, definitely. So, yeah, so after the police show, um, Spidey chases the crime master into the sewers of New York, and uh, he ultimately does lose him. So Spider-Man goes from there to visit J. Jonah Jameson uh, to warn him. So Spidey, basically, he has a hunch that Frederick Foswell is involved, and he goes to warn JJJ that Foswell's either the crime master or the Green Goblin, which <laughs> is weird in a number of ways. One, why would he warn J. Jonah Jameson of this? I right. guess because he works there. Yeah. Um, but kind of a, you know, like warning your, like one of your most public adversaries is is a little <laughs> odd. Plus, like he's really condemning Foswell without evidence. He even says he doesn't have proof yet. <laughs> yeah. Just like a feeling. Yeah. yeah. So JJJ pretty much ignores him on this, which good for him. And Foswell walks through the door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right then. And Jonah's kind of like stands by his man in a respectable way. So Foswell, he he actually does, we, throughout this issue, and last, there's a reference to this guy named Patch, who's a new mm-hmm. character, and he's a stoolie. So he's like a criminal who is reporting into the police, and Patch calls in and gives up a crime master. So he basically like gives him to the police and says, you know, here's what you need to do to go arrest him. Police go after a crime master. Crime master dies in a shootout. Across the street from the Daily Bugle, like on a rooftop across the street, like they're watching out their window, right? Yeah, like he's going to snipe Spider-Man, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then the police, you know, because Patch has called him in, the police are able to apprehend and take him down first. So there there goes crime master. That piece of the plot is dismissed uh pete after this happens he decides he wants to go to the daily globe to sell some of his pictures in kind of a nice little like him finally trying to get some value for his his work and uh there's the publisher there is barney bushkin and he is so (laughs) jovial and the complete opposite of jonah that pete is just completely skeeved out calls him nosy and leaves yeah the guy's just like wow these are great pictures incredible how'd you get them where were you? Like, how do you know Spider-Man? And just starts asking too many questions. And he he much prefers J. Jonah Jameson, who barely looks at him and just yeah. insults him. Yeah, it's a nice, funny change of pace. Um, there's 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 a couple other really funny parts here that I wanted to mention. Before, when Spider-Man was in the sewers, he, like, plopped out into the bay. And as he climbed up out of the water, there was a bunch of kids there. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they say something about an autograph. He says, like, oh, I can't sign autographs right now and uh and one of the kids was like that that's okay spider-man and then they say to each other i haven't got the heart to tell him we're human torch fans (laughs) (laughs) which i like and spider-man after all the stuff with the crime master has decided like enough's enough i can't find my second costume aunt may has it hidden too well like he keeps going to look for it can't find it He's like, it's a really funny uh, transition. He's like, I'm finally going to do the, the act that I dread the most or something like that, like building it up like, you know, I, I have to summon all my bravery and courage to, to do this. And then the panel cuts to him sewing. <laughs> There's a yeah. very funny picture of just him looking like intensely concentrating on uh, getting the thread through the eye of the needle. <laughs> that made me actually laugh out loud. Yeah, it's a really nice uh, intentional comedy. Yeah. And I, I think so by the end of this. Uh, Foswell, Frederick Foswell, he is revealed as Patch. Mm-hmm. He is, in fact, the Stooley. So Foswell has gone good. He's just using his connections for information. Uh, Green Goblin is very intentionally still a mystery, yep. <clears throat> which will continue to build. And there's the issue ends with a, a really nice moment with uh, Peter Parker and Aunt May going out to the movies together. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so they yeah. take some time to actually just have a little uh, aunt, aunt-nephew date, essentially. Yeah. And uh, it's nice. You get to see them. They're so often... 
you know, there's tension. And this is just like them getting to enjoy each other's company. Yeah, yeah, it's sweet. So, uh, yeah, that leads directly into Amazing Spider-Man number 28. Uh, at, at high school, we soon learn that it's graduation day. Which, again, yeah. is kind of wild. Like, we're 28 issues in, and they are already, like, high school Peters in the past. Bring on college, Peter. High school Peter does not last very long. Yeah. And I, that's why I include this issue is to call that out. Because I think even, like, today, when you look at, like, the MCU relaunch of Spider-Man, you know, it's like, when is the character best? Oh, when he's in high school. Yeah. And then when you actually look at the comic resume, they think it's like, you're thinking he's not in college. high school that long. Yeah, you're thinking of college yeah. if you're thinking of that. Because he spends, I think he spends considerably longer in and out of college. Yes, definitely. So at school, he's getting the cold shoulder from Liz Allen because he got this. He got in this fight with Flash Thompson, and Liz Allen is now not speaking to either of them. Uh, <laughs> so Spider Man. Oh wait, why doesn't he have his costume? He still doesn't have a costume. Sewing, he still doesn't have it. It's the same same issue. But sewing didn't work. Oh, that's right. Okay. So when he was sewing his costume last time, he was just sewing together the uh, the costume from last time. Like, I think he was just fixing it up to, to make it not keep falling off of himself. Something like that. Yes. He's fixing the, the backup. The costume shop costume. But uh, it's still it's still not great. So he decides, like, he's going to go get his costume back from Spencer Smythe. is the doctor who created the Spider Slayer and that stole his costume initially. He, like, left his costume behind as a, as a prank on J. Jonah Jameson, like, four issues ago. And so he decides he's going to go to this doctor's house, get his costume back. When he walks in... Uh, Dr. Smythe is like, oh, hi, Peter Parker. And immediately his spider, his spider machine, Spider Slayer, lashes out and grabs Peter Parker. <laughs> and th- there's been a bunch of times where, like, people could suspect that Peter Parker's Spider-Man, but they just don't. They're just like, oh, puny Parker? Couldn't be him. Dr. Right. Smythe is the first one who's like, you know, I'm not going to turn off my machine till I get to the bottom of this. This teenager could be Spider-Man. <laughs> At which point Spider-Man's like, I brought a jar of spiders to help your research, <laughs> trying to explain away why he uh, he's captured by this machine. I do like the idea of him just constantly traveling with spiders in his, <laughs> in his coat pocket. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the actual grossness of spiders does not come across at all with his character. No. Anyway, Dr. Smythe uh, is distracted by a visitor, at which point Spider-Man finds his old costume and he switches it out with the costume shop costume. He sees this scene of a man come in called, uh, this man named Raxton uh, comes in and he's arguing with Dr. Smythe about his rights to some chemical formula that he thinks are equally his. They have this fight and he has this liquid metal alloy that spills all over him during the fight. It coats him with Mark Raxton, by the way. What is it? Mark? Mark Raxton. Yep. So uh, Mark Raxton's covered in this liquid metal alloy that turns him basically into like a golden man <laughs> um and, and he stomps out furious but he soon realizes that being coated in metal it's like embedded in his skin so he has he's super strong and super durable and basically a metal man a molten man so to speak yeah i do think the molten man like he's not a fantastic spider-man villain and i'm less i honestly like we've passed over much better spidey villains yeah uh, Scorpion Mysterio, for example. Yeah. Uh, Molten Man gets gets the issue read because it's high school graduation. Yeah. Day. So I got to be honest, like I'm not super here for pretty much anything to do with Spidey fighting the Molten Man. That's pretty villain of the week. I do like that during the fight, Molten Man, like Spider-Man shows up to fight him, blah, blah, blah. But Molten Man's shirt like bursts off <laughs> during the fight. And then he's just wearing pants. 
he rips he rips the legs of his pants off to create shorts and says, since you're in costume, I'll create a similar effect. There, from now on, everyone will recognize the molten man because he wears shorts. <laughs> it's really <laughs> ridiculous. Like, I'll create a costume of half pants. <laughs> um, his glistening golden skin yeah. was not going to be defining enough. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's he looks like the Hulk. He's just wearing shorts. Yeah, so the, the issue, like the main focal point for me is Jay Jonah is the graduation speaker at Peter Parker's high school. Yeah. Um, and I, I really like, so Jonah's kind of putting on his like most winsome smile <laughs> and he's, you know, jovial Jonah, which is always creepier to people. And I just love every kid, every kid in the high school class is razzing Jonah throughout this entire speech. It's great. One of them says, is that a smile or is he wearing a fright mask? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Well, you know, yeah. what's funny though, is like everyone is just kind of disgusted with how fake and like horrifying him being happy is except for aunt may who is immediately charmed by him aunt may has the worst Mm -hmm. taste in men (laughs) she says such a charming sincere warm-hearted man to know him must be to love him (laughs) 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 yeah um uh, also during graduation it's announced that flash thompson has gotten a athletic scholarship and peter parker has received a uh, science scholarship to empire state university so they are they are stuck together despite how much they hate each other going yeah, to the same school that, that is important yeah and thus ends the high school career of peter parker i just wanted to point out that again there's a really funny letter here in Sp- spider-man number 28 from edward brumby i, I love the the through line of people reading every issue and hating them Uh, He writes, you once said, since when do we have competitors? I'll tell you, ever since you were on the stands. I think your so-called superheroes are terrible. In fact, they're all copies, except Spider-Man. Don't think I've read just one or two of your comics. I've read over 50 of them. I get them so I can read your letters page. They're the only good thing in your comics. (laughs) And their response is very funny. They say, we don't care. We don't care if you get them just because you like to pull out the staples. Just so long as you keep getting them. That's hilarious. That's so good. That's also not like that seems insane, but people do that today. Yeah, really? Okay. <laughs> They're just on YouTube. <laughs> I read every issue just just to make sure I, I still hate it. Yeah. All right. So that's going to bring us to the final selection we're going to cover in part one. Um, this is the lengthiest stretch of issues that we've talked about. This is Strange Tales number 130 to 141. And we're going to talk about just the B stories in this portion. The B stories being the second story, which features Doctor Strange in a title, in a story that is now known as The Search for Eternity. Would you call this the first arc in Marvel Comics? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, this is the... Like, the, the first, first like, our first story event? Yeah, yeah. So this this Lee and Ditko, and mostly Artie Semek joint, is the first multi-issue continuous mm-hmm. arc Um in the same way like it reads it reads the most like we understand like a trade paperback collection would read today where everything's written you know five to six issues like is one story that's what the search for eternity is in a lot of ways um and really it continues even to like issue number 146 which is interesting just because it's like dr strange right like that they're doing this with one of their heroes that is I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I don't know how popular he was. Maybe he was right up there, but he doesn't have his own solo title. So, or m- maybe that's why. Maybe they wanted to experiment with this format with someone who was not the biggest. So, I think the cover to issue one thirty actually it starts to highlight that transition where it really it shows the changing yeah. of the guard, where the feature image 
is is the defeat mm-hmm. of Doctor Strange with Baron Mordo is the headline. Yeah. And then like yeah. the smaller on the right is the compound Johnny and Ben. I think it just it to me it highlights like Doctor Strange is entering this huge ongoing continuous arc and and Ben Graham yeah. and Johnny Storm are making Beatles jokes. Like it's oh, right. it's a yeah. pretty yeah, disparate yeah. connection. And like we're gonna see obviously the Ben and Johnny stories, they're gonna be done by issue one thirty five when Strange Tales becomes um a Nick Fury and Doctor Strange book instead and we'll talk about the nick fury issues in part two so this this saga begins with dormammu essentially skirting his agreement with strange and if you remember last we left off they have a gentleman's agreement where strange defeated him and dormammu cannot invade earth or rather strange helped him and as a result dormammu granted him the agreement that he would not invade earth and dormammu infuses baron mordo with his power instead and thus begins the hunt for Doctor Strange and the Ancient One. Mordo and his acolytes mm-hmm. raid the Ancient Ones um, and, and Strange is visiting like their temple. And they send them all on the run. And basically, the the next several issues are all about Mordo um, basically trying to capture Doctor Strange and take him down. He sends an e-blast, essentially, right. to all practitioners of black magic throughout the world. Uh, to to like you know join up with him, and and in his newly powered state, Doctor Strange really can't just one on one take him down, or at least he doesn't expect to be able yeah. to. So Strange is on the run. The Ancient One is in a coma or falling into a coma, and that's basically like that. That's this whole story, right? The the entire story is basically you could break down to Baron Mordo being backed by Dormammu is trying to hunt and kill Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange is either running from Baron Mordo or uh, or trying to to hunt down clues to the Ancient One has mentioned someone named Eternity and that Eternity will be the key to uh, to, to defeating Dormammu. And, and, and that's kind of it with all these like little side quests, basically. Like he, you've got this overarching thing where he's being pursued and then he just goes on these little side adventures for one issue here and there. That happens a few times. Yeah, the one the one thing you get that is a little nice change of pace and the reason we read kind of all this to explore is you get a lot of dimension hopping here. So oh, like, it's it's really cool. Like this yeah. this is the first time I've been like really sold on how unique like it's not just unique for 1965. Like it just seems like I, I've seen a lot of the I don't know. I've seen a lot of art that's like big psychedelic dimension spanning art or it still like it really strikes me as totally unique and visually, yeah, it, it, it visually singular thing here that like still I don't see I don't see copied that much like the way he uses geometry uh, is is really cool. Yeah, the the use of geometry and space to to sort of create like truly alien dimensions like I confusing think is almost pretty effective. Yeah, it's confusing like you don't which way's up, which way's down, which way's in, yeah. which way's out. You don't know. Um, so as all this is happening, uh, basically you have Clea is sort of watching Dormammu help Baron Mordo. And of course she um, looks to aid Strange as he aided her and her people in the Mm -hmm. Dormammu dread dimension. She puts a bomb, uh, like a magic bomb by the mindless ones barriers and six them on, on Dormammu. Yeah. And basically this distracts him long enough to, for Strange to actually like get some shots in at Baron Mordo. He loses some of his power when they finally fight. Yeah. Um, Long story short, like this story really starts to change pace when, so Doctor Strange is on the search for eternity, 
the ancient one has mentioned. This is something he needs to find. Strange is hopping dimensions. And then basically, by the time we get to issue number 137, Mm -hmm. uh, Strange finally decides, like, basically, he has not been able to find the answer. He can't figure out how to get him. It actually reminds me a lot of, like, um, the seventh Harry Potter book. Uh, Deathly Hallows, where it's just like oh, yeah. there are hundreds of pages. They can't find a Horcrux. Like that's basically right. what Strange yeah. is doing, but with um with Eternity. And he he goes finally into like a mind battle with the unconscious Ancient One, who mm-hmm. just has all these mental defenses up that Strange has to has to fight. And he finally finds once the Ancient One sort of recognizes it's him, um the quote unquote secrets of Eternity. Yeah. And this takes us to issue one thirty eight, where we get my absolute favorite Ditko Dimension sca- escapes. I think they look super awesome. And it turns out Eternity is or can take like a personified like human form uh, just with all these planets and space contained within it. He looks like a a human-shaped silhouette that's just like a void in which that contains, you know, Eternity. It's a really cool design. And I can see why. I I know this this is a design that sticks. uh, Yeah. That I've read in like comics decades from then and this is a big one because it introduces like the marvel cosmic pantheon so like the true upper tier of cosmic beings in the marvel universe um eternity is definitely at at the top of that list and you don't really have any of the others at this point and honestly a lot of them won't even be introduced until like the 70s but eternity is a major player and he he's always looked like this you know yeah yeah it's really cool i i if calling out favorite pages that the, the opening splash page of 133 is my absolute favorite, just to mm. to point that out. The design here is really fun. Like, it, it switches back and forth between Doctor Strange, like, flying all over the world, basically, trying to escape Mordo's agents, which reminds me of Tintin <laughs> a little bit, mm. the Tintin comics of just, like, it's it's kind of a, a travelogue of, yeah. you know, of foreign countries via comic books. Yeah, we go to Hong Kong, we go to New York, it is, it's all over the map. Yeah, and, and just the, the artist really strong here uh in in both the like the trippy dimensional stuff and the grounded on earth back on earth stuff yeah so strange having found eternity basically finds that uh eternity won't really tell him anything or help him (laughs) yeah it's a lot of build-up to fighting eternity and then eternity basically just says like look within yourself for power like the power was in your heart all along really weird and basically useless like he doesn't yeah i expected him to to come to some revelation later with the Ramamu, like, oh, I remember what Eternity said. It was within me all along, and the power was love. But <laughs> right. it, it never, it never comes up again. Like he never, <laughs> he never addresses that Eternity helped him in any way whatsoever. Yeah, not, not really at all. Um, which is interesting. <laughs> but basically, the the story kind of ends with Dormammu and Mordu. They capture the Ancient One. Strange goes to rescue them, and we get, like, the last few issues, which actually is going to take us into technically the first couple months of 66, 140 and 141. It's basically a Strange Force to Mamu fight. Um, Mordo is is defeated and sort of cast aside. I mean, Baron Mordo is, is a Doctor Strange nemesis, but he's also, like, he's so clearly the um, submissive lackey of Dormammu yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah, he right. just doesn't. Dormammu is the true big bad, which I kind of like that structure and relationship. Yeah, it's fun. But Dormammu, throughout this, he insists on fighting Doctor Strange like mano a mano without magic, which is is kind of weird. But it's also just like 
it it makes it so that strange has a chance yeah. um because by magical means like dormammu should demolish him mm-hmm. so strange he wins this battle with the pincers of power pretty good battle too i liked the yeah the physicality of it i quite like that the council of the netherworlds is like summoned and watching so yeah, you have yeah. all these magical beings throughout and that's the one thing this saga does nicely as well is like it it develops the idea that there are magicians and sorcerers um all over earth all mm-hmm. over different dimensions like it builds out the potential of of a cast yeah. in a way that we haven't necessarily seen like it's not do- just doctor strange and the ancient one out there um so strange wins morto backstabs him of course uh strange wins again <laughs> in issue 141 Dormammu was mad that Mordo helped him out you know of course uh, but even in winning the battle against Dormammu and finally again sort of sealing the um, Dormammu from invading Earth even in doing this Dormammu you know basically uh, sends a video message to Strange telling him that he's banishing Clea to an unknown dimension in yeah. retaliation so he lashes out at Clea in response to Strange's victory and this is going to be an ongoing thread um, trying to find Clea after Dormammu has banished her. I'm interested to see how this gets resolved. Yeah. I, the one thing about Dormammu I want to point out is that he keeps funneling his power into Baron Mordo and exhausting himself, and then he needs to go recharge. <laughs> and at one point he goes and like sits on this big, weird, triangular chair thing, and he says, oh, I need to go absorb new power from my enchanted triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very good, and since I read this, I went and bought my own Enchanted Triangle, and it's right. Like, I have a ton of energy since I started sitting in this thing. It's working for you? Very nice. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Very nice. Cool. Yeah, I think this is, like, this is probably the best uh, best way to get, like, what was Doctor Strange in the 60s and what was that mm-hmm. phenomenon, like, yeah. at, at least under the Stanley and Steve Ditko years. I, I do think, like, reading all 11 of these can be a little tact. Like, you don't really need it per se it's it's important to marvel history but just for the story no there, there's a we didn't mention it but there's like two whole two, at least two whole issues that are just like mm-hmm. oh dr strange is in a new dimension and he's involving himself in the politics of some other strange dimension with its own demons and magicians yeah. and it, it's completely secondary to the main plot it's just like right. him having these little adventures within the big adventure which, which are fine and fun, but like if you sit down to read all twelve at once, you can like I it, did. Yeah, it, it I, can... I think like if you're if you're not really into the psychedelic concepts here or don't want to read all of it, I would say you could just go from like one thirty eight to one forty one and probably get as much as you need, frankly. Yeah, but that's gonna do it for us. Yeah, that is my moral this year, nineteen sixty five. Yeah, so uh, just started up a Facebook page, so come find us on there. I'll be you know announcing new episodes and stuff there. If you don't use Twitter. Also, come find us on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm posting our favorite panels of the year picked by you, our patrons. Speaking of which, at patreon.com, you can come and back us for as low as a dollar a month to get some pretty cool benefits. Send out a weekly newsletter. You can enter our drawing to get uh, chosen to pick your favorite panel of the year to go on our social media pages. Come into our Slack channel, which is like tons of conversation is happening there. Like while we're recording, my phone just keeps blowing up because (laughs) there's, there's some conversation I'm looking forward to going to read once this is done. So our poll for 1965 is what are the best Stanley or what do you think is the best Stanley trope? So the options are meta narratives, superheroes dealing with common day to day issues, the overall New York attitude, New York state of mind. Yeah. Snappy banter and one liners, pop culture references or the, his endless creation of new characters. If you want to vote in our poll, 
Uh, you can find that on Patreon. If you uh, back us at the $1 level, you can uh, come chat with us about the poll and lend your voice to that. And get your votes in, and we will discuss the results on the uh, variant cover episode we do for 1965. Yep. You can send your feedback in for the poll by March 12th. Uh, you can also send an email to mymarvelousyear at gmail.com for listener feedback that we will talk about on the 1965 listener response episode. Again, if you can get that in by Tuesday, March 12th, that will be uh, perfect for us. 1965 Part 2 will come out on Monday, March 11th. So look forward to that a week from um, when Part 1 here is released. Music for the show is by Disasterpiece. You can find more of Disasterpiece music on SoundCloud. I'm Dave. You can find my writing at comicbookherald.com. And uh, Zach, of course, I think people can find you over at uh, at My Marvelous Year, right? On the various social yeah, channels. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's basically how you can get in contact with me, that or on the Slack channel. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody, and enjoy the comics. We'll see you next year. See you next year. Mm-hmm.